The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 7. What I want us to do is you've got an insert in there that says the kingdom of God at the top. And this is going to be kind of our map for the second part of looking at the New Testament. What you've got on this map right here is you've got three different, this, this chart map is divided at the top by a timeline. And what you see on the left is, is Christ. We've got a picture of Christ in Matthew to John. And then it comes to the cross where he dies, rises from the grave, and ascends into heaven. And then you've got a period of the church. And that's the picture we get from Acts all the way to Jude. The picture of the church, the church growing, the church advancing, the church encouraging one another, all that picture. Then it's all looking forward to when Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, that inaugurates the picture of the restoration of all creation. So we've got which we see in Revelation. So you've got Christ, the church, and creation. That's kind of a timeline. So with that, what I'd like for us to do is to take each one of those time periods and I want us to think about the kingdom in those time periods and what we see revealed about the king. And then at the bottom, the very bottom, is going to ask, we're going to ask some questions because the last thing I want us to do is just come in here tonight and study the New Testament as mere theory or knowledge. We need to see how the word comes to life in us and how it affects our lives. So I want us to guard tonight against just getting a bunch of knowledge about the New Testament and not seeing how it relates to our lives. So I want to I want to challenge you with three questions tonight based on the overarching message of the New Testament. How does God reveal his kingdom in the New Testament? And we're going to go kind of piece by piece through these, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the top three blanks. You've actually got them blanks in two different places on your notes and, and in here. The first, we're gonna, the first thing we're going to look at is how he reveals his kingdom through the gospel of his kingdom. Through the gospel of the kingdom. That is the time of Christ. Through the gospel of the kingdom. Second, we're going to see how God reveals the kingdom through the mission of this kingdom. And that's what we're going to see in the church. So from the gospel of the kingdom to the mission of the kingdom, and then we're going to close out with the hope of the kingdom. We're going to close out with the hope of the kingdom. So the challenge before us is to stay awake till we get to the hope, all right? <laughs> and it's okay, it, it's okay to get tired. It's okay to stand up. It's okay to walk around. It's okay to just kind of do that maneuver however many times you need to. You do, you just did that. Okay, that's great. Uh, you're just doing whatever you need to. We, we got hope coming. There's hope of an end here, okay? So hold on to the hope, all right? So we got the gospel of the kingdom, the mission of the kingdom, and the hope of the kingdom. I want us to see those unfold in three different ways. What we'll do, just kind of keep this handy as we go along, and we're going to fill in these blanks as we, as we come to them. The gospel of the kingdom, that's where we're going to start. And I'm encourage you to pull out your Bibles. Instead of, we're going to do some more looking at some different things in Scripture. We did that some in the first part. We're going to do some more in the second part here because I want, us, I want you to see these things unfold and give you an opportunity maybe to underline some verses and put a little note out the side that deals with what we're talking about. So, and the more activity that involves, the more it will keep us awake. Okay, here we go. The gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? If I were to ask every single person in here tonight, what is the gospel? I'd probably get numerous different answers. Exactly what is the gospel? So what we need to do is we need to dive in to see the gospel as 
as the declaration of who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's where the gospel centers around. Centers around the coming of the kingdom of God. And so the first truth we see, I want you to see in the gospel of the kingdom, is that the king has come. That is how the New Testament starts, with the declaration that the king, we're not waiting for him anymore, the king has come. He is on the scene. The king is in the house, okay? That's what we're going to see at the very beginning of the New Testament. I want you to see it in a few different ways. First of all, the Old Testament people's anticipation. The Old Testament people's anticipation. Old Testament, Micah chapter 5. I'm going to read a passage from there. If you trust yourself to find Micah fast enough, then go for it. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Says, marshal your troops, O city of Jerusalem, city of uh, city of marshal troops, O city of troops. Now remember, this is the prophet speaking about things to come. For a siege is laid against us; they will strike Israel rulers on the. All right, maybe I'm getting a little tired. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. That is a prophecy in the Old Testament that is pointing toward the New Testament. Now that was their anticipation. What you had in the first century Jewish world is you had... The, this anticipation since the end of the Old Testament of when's the king going to come, especially under this Roman rule. How are we going to be delivered from the Romans? They are waiting for a king to come to rise up and establish God's reign over all of Rome, all the world. They're ready for them to be restored. That's what they're looking forward to. And that's what had been said. Even Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And he will re- his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So that's the Old Testament people's anticipation. Then we get to the New Testament and the king's introduction. And I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to see the king's introduction, the tie-in here. I listed a couple of others. They're all over the Old Testament. And just by way of note, I've tried to list a good number of scriptures here for you to be able to go back and look on your own. But this does not represent all that show these truths. There's so many scriptures there in the Old Testament. But you get to Matthew chapter 1. And it had been said way back here, whose origins are from old, from of old, from of ancient times. And so in the, king, in, in, in the king's introduction here in Matthew chapter 1, it says a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That is a loaded sentence. He is the son of Abraham of old. And he starts with Abraham. And he goes down to give us a list of the genealogy of Jesus. He starts intentionally with Abraham. Remember who's Matthew writing to? He's writing to the Jewish people. He is king of who? The Jews. So he starts with Abraham, but he doesn't just emphasize Abraham. He emphasizes that he's the son of who? 
David, the anointed king, who is the mediator of the covenant. He says he's the son of David. And so we see verses 2 through 6. Remember, these are the genealogies we skip over, and it makes it easier to read through a chapter of the Bible because you don't have to read every single word. Verses 2 to 6, you see it stopped Jesse, the father of King David. Then it starts again. David was the father of Solomon. And it goes down all the way to verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The picture is that the king has come. He is the anointed king that we've been looking for. That's how Matthew chapter 1 sets it up. And then you get down to verse 20. And it says, and you might underline son of David or son of Abraham in these verses. Look at verse 20. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, talking about Joseph here, and said, Joseph, son of David. He's emphasizing that he's in the Davidic line. And then you get over to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Remember Micah, chapter 5, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, coincidence? God's got this thing rigged. In Bethlehem in Judea, during the first time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Who's the King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. And so you get down to verse 6, and guess where he's quoting from? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd, be the shepherd of my people Israel. He is the anointed king that had been looked at ever since the beginning. Now, throughout the rest of Matthew, we won't look at all these verses, 9, 17, 15, 22, and so on, over and over again, his Abrahamic and Davidic lineage are emphasized. He is the son of David. He is the king who was promised who would come. From the very beginning... Matthew's making clear that this is the king we've been waiting for. And what you're going to see throughout all of these things that I'm, I'm calling the king introduction here, all of them are rooted in just the first two or three chapters of each of the Gospels. We're not even diving into the middle of, the God, middle of these books or the end of these books. They're all in the introduction. How is Jesus introduced to the people? First of all, as the anointed king. Second, he's introduced as God. He is God. You get to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 23. Really, 22 and 23. Chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Who's with us? In Jesus. God is with us. So not only is he the king, he is God. Third, he is the new Adam. The new Adam. What do you mean by that? Well, turn me over to Luke, his introduction. Look at Luke chapter 3. This is one of those places, you know, when you, when you get there, maybe put a little note out to the side. Jesus is the new Adam. Just kind of mark your Bible up to help you understand as you're reading through it. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, he gives the lineage of Jesus. He does it kind of backwards from what Matthew did. It says in verse 23, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And then he starts working backwards. But he doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back when you get to verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why would Luke do that? Who's he writing to? Not, not primarily Jewish people. He's writing primarily to Gentiles. And so he's tying the person of Christ all the way back to the first man, Adam. Now what's interesting is right after, why did, why did Luke not do this in chapter 1 or chapter 2? Why didn't he take, why didn't he take Matthew's advice and do it that way? Well, he does it here, and then in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, he 
launches the picture of Jesus going into the wilderness to be what? To be tempted. We've got this picture of Jesus being linked to Adam. So the reader is brought back to Adam, who in his temptation failed. And the result is all of us, all of us across this room, all of us throughout history have a sinful nature in us. It's inherited from Adam, Romans chapter 5. And so there's a new Adam on the scene. And he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted. And guess what? He doesn't give in. This is the new Adam who is able to pay the price for our sin because he alone on the landscape of human history did not fall in the lines of Adam of old. All of us have. Every single one of us has. And it disqualifies us from ever being able to save ourselves. But Jesus is the new Adam. He is the new man that represents us. And God credits the righteousness that was his onto us. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21, incredible exposition of that, that picture. So when we see Jesus as the new Adam, it's linking him all the way back to Genesis. Next, he is the true Israel, the seed of, Bir- uh, seed of Abraham. <laughs> I almost said Birmingham. He's not. <laughs> he is not the seed of Birmingham. Okay. Wow. Okay. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. I want you to see Matthew chapter 2 again. Sorry, we're going to be back and forth all over the place, but I want you to see this, how he's linked with Israel and how this even relates to the the temptation narrative that we see in Luke chapter 4 as well as in Matthew chapter 4. In Luke and Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, this is when they escaped to Egypt. And it says, So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, does anybody know what book he's quoting from there? Quoting from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Okay, now some of you are thinking, well, I don't I mean, they, they really paid attention at Old Testament secret church. How did they do that? Well, they probably got a little note at the bottom of their Bible, <laughs> a little letter kind of send you down. You can be an instant Bible scholar. This is really neat. So Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Not that you may not have been paying attention at secret church, but when you go back to Hosea, which we won't look at tonight, what you'll see is that is a passage that is talking about the people of God that he's going to bring back. And so what Matthew is doing here is he is equating Jesus with the people of God. That he is the epitome, so to speak, of the people of God. You've got a corporate picture in Hosea 11 of the people now becoming a singular, personal picture of Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus and the people of Israel brought together. Now, when you get to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, Jesus goes through the temptations. Now, when he goes through the temptations, three different times he's tempted, and every single time he says the same thing. What? What does he say? He says, it, was, it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament. Now, let's see if we have learned how to be instant Bible scholars. He said in verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where is he quoting from there? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. See? All right. It's easy. Then... Then you get down to verse 7. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Where is he quoting from there? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Now you got one more. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where is that quoting from? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse... All those quotations from the book of Deuteronomy from when Israel was tempted in the wilderness. And Israel failed. 
Over and over again, Israel failed in the wilderness. And Old Testament history is the picture of Israel failing over and over and over again. So Jesus comes on the scene, and it just so happens by coincidence that when he's tempted, he quotes from there and says, I'm not going to fail. And Jesus is the true Israel. He is the epitome of the people of God. And he comes on the scene, and when he goes into battle with the devil, he does not come out the loser. He comes out the winner in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, where God's people throughout her history have not been able to do that. Jesus is able to do that. He is the true Israel. Isn't this good? All right. He is the king, the anointed king. He's God. He is the new Adam. And, and you know, that picture even gets better, this whole Israel thing, because when Jesus gets to the point where he, he calls his disciples, how many does he happen to call? Twelve. Well, that, that's, that's quite a coincidence because the people of Israel had how many tribes? Twelve tribes. And then, so you see that, that Jewish imagery. And then, remember Abraham. Remember the Abrahamic blessing, Genesis chapter 12? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. At the end of this picture of Jesus Christ, he rises up from his resurrection. He says, now we're going to go and we're going to be a blessing. We're going to make disciples in where? All nations, all the peoples of the earth are going to come to know the love and the glory of my Father. That's where it's all headed. The Jewish picture of Jesus is, is incredible in the book of Matthew. Okay, he is next. Let's go, to, let's go to John a little bit here. He's the Passover lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29, when, when he is spotted, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we get, now who wrote the book of Revelation? Anybody remember? John. Revelation chapter 5, the glorious picture that we're going to dive into is the lion who, when he came to the earth, was the lamb. Oh, it's an incredible imagery here. The lamb, Passover lamb, Exodus. When we sprinkled his blood over our doorposts, the lamb has come. He is the one. When you are under his umbrella of his blood, you stand right before God the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of who? Remember the emphasis in John. He's writing for the world. He takes away the sins of the world to all people within the sound of my voice and all people throughout all creation. His blood will cover the sins in your life when you trust in him. That's the picture in John. He's the Passover lamb. Next, he's the word of God. He's the word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Why the emphasis on the word? Well, in the beginning. Does that sound like another book in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth over and over again throughout Genesis 1 and 2, this creation narrative. How is creation coming to be? By the word of God. God said this, let there be light, and there was. God said this, and it happened. God said this, and it happened. Over and over again, the power of the word in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. When we get to John chapter 1, he draws it all the way back, and the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The revelation of God now in Jesus. The word has become flesh and dwelled among us. He is the word of God. This is even a picture of the whole Old Testament prophet picture that we see. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophet, the spokesman of the Word of God. Who is more fit to be the spokesman of the Word of God? He is. It's not just his teachings. It's his very person. He is God's spokesman. When you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 14, 15, we won't go there. You might just make a little note there. That's when Jesus begins his ministry. And he goes down to Galilee to begin his ministry after something happens. After John is put in prison. is when Mark shows the transition 
John the Baptist, the prophet, the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament, put in prison. And Jesus began his ministry there in Mark chapter 1, in that picture that we see there. It inaugurates the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he's the word of God. Next, he is the tabernacle. John 1:14, and we talked about this some of the Old Testament. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It literally says tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, you've got a picture before the temple was there of the tabernacle. And that's where the presence and the glory of God dwelled among his people. That was the Old Testament picture, now illuminated by the glorious reality of Christ with us in the Old Testament. He has made his dwelling among us. He has come to us. He has shown himself to us up close and personal. He's the tabernacle. And then lastly, he is the temple. He is the temple. Look at John chapter 2, verse 13 and following. We won't start at verse 13. You remember the story. Jesus is cleansing the temple, so to speak. He's going in and he turns everything over. And he's telling them, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. And then in verse 17, his disciples remember that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. And he quotes there from the Old Testament. But then listen to this. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can, she, can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In other words, they got it. They finally got it. And Jesus, when he came, all throughout the Old Testament, and even up to this day, they would journey to the temple to encounter the glory of God. And you'd make long journeys to come to this place where God dwelled among his people, where you would worship. And you had this elaborate system of worship that was set up to revolve around the place where the glory of God dwelled. Jesus comes and he says, if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to encounter the glory of God, here I am. He is the temple. I am the new temple. And it just gets better that when this new temple would die and the curtain of the old temple would be torn in two and he would rise from the grave and he would send his Holy Spirit so that the temple, the glory of God dwells, would all glory be to his name, be in us. That our bodies would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we honor God with our bodies with great zeal and we guard our bodies against any temptation that would come against us because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the glorious God himself lives in us. He is the temple. Jesus is, remember God's people bring God's people to his place. This is his place. That's where they would come, the tabernacle of the temple. Now Jesus is. That's what I mean by Jesus is the place of God. He is where the glory of God dwells. His kingdom is coming full circle. We're seeing the picture here. Now that's the king's introduction. The king's next. We're seeing the king's anticipation, the king's introduction, the king's proclamation. The king's proclamation. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.